This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days, so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're speaking with Minu Arjamand about her new book, Staged, Show Trials, Political Theater, and the, Aesthetic- and the Aesthetics of Judgment. That's a hard word. <laughs> uh, out from Columbia University Press. Uh, this book explores the public trials of the post-World War II period, alongside analysis of plays about trials from the same period, both in Germany and America. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I really enjoyed the book, and it's uh, it's such a, a great kind of window into this time period. Um, do, would you like to start by reading a selection from the book? Sure. Um, so let me read a section that's from a later chapter in the book, and it's about a performance of a play that was based on the Nuremberg trial. In the early spring of 1969, the former head of the Reichsbank, Halmer Schacht, traveled from Munich to see a play at Vienna's Burgtheater, perhaps the most prestigious stage in all of Europe. He sat in the very first row of the theater, face to face with a younger version of himself. The play was Trial in Nuremberg, and Schacht sat both on stage and in the audience. Schacht had been one of the few acquitted defendants at the International Military Tribunal in Nuremberg, but the play did not unequivocally exonerate him. When the curtain fell, Schacht lost no time in passing judgment on the play. He told reporters that the actor playing him was wonderful, mimicking him very effectively in both gesture and expression. And he was particularly honored that his character was played by Paul Hoffmann, the artistic director of the Burgtheater, as well as a successful film and television actor. Schacht also had high praise for the stage direction of the play. Outstanding, simply outstanding. The man knows what it's about. But Schacht condemned the playwright. It is a miserable work. The Nuremberg trial should have been fantastic material for a dramatist. The author, unfortunately, couldn't make anything of it. With a little skill, he could have used the material to prove 
prepare a wonderful indictment of the absurdity of the accusations against my person. As a crowd gathered around him in the coat check area, Schach decided to make up for the author's lost opportunity to exonerate him. The author shows me in the wrong light. He wants to make the audience believe that I joined the Hitler government because of rearmament. That's nonsense. I wanted to tame unemployment. That's why I joined the government. You have to keep in mind that at that time, there were 6.5 million people out of work. And furthermore, in the 1930s, we had to rescue Germany from the communists. There were 230 nationalist socialist deputies against 100 communists. And so I ask you, who tamed unemployment? I was the only person in all of Europe who did it. At the end of his speech, one woman shyly approached Schacht and asked him to sign her program. Schacht leered. Aren't you afraid of me? But I'm a war criminal. Finally, someone who's not afraid. At the end of the impromptu performance, Schacht got one last moment in the spotlight, which he used to claim the legacy that he thought he deserved. When a reporter asked him who he thought was the greatest economist of the century, he replied, well, if you ask me like that, me, of course. Schacht used the Vienna performance of Trial in Nuremberg to try to rewrite history. There's no doubt that Schacht genuinely believed Sorry, there is no reason to doubt that Schacht genuinely believed that he was the greatest economist of the century, that supporting National Socialism was the best way to defeat communism, and that the charges brought against him at Nuremberg were a gross miscarriage of justice. But his version of history clashed with the history that the play Trial in Nuremberg presented, a history that emphasized Jewish persecution and the Holocaust, linked genocide with capitalism and imperialism, and drew connections between Germany's war crimes and the United States' war in Vietnam. These divergent histories were narrated and contested in the theater, both on stage and in the lobby, and the theater provided a public institutional space in which people could judge the evidence of such contesting historical narratives. Yeah, that's such a chilling anecdote. Yeah, it really is. When I came across it in... The archive, I was really stunned just reading this account of Schacht and how completely unself-aware and self-righteous this former Nazi was. Um, it's, uh, it's sort of nauseating, but at the same time, so fascinating to think about what theater meant as a public space at, at this particular historical moment. Yeah. One thing that occurred to me when you were reading that, that I think kind of connects this anecdote to your larger argument is that he uses this aesthetic judgment to kind of smuggle in a political judgment where he says, you know, if the player had only had a little skill, he could have written a, a, a better play mm-hmm. that exonerated a Nazi, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like what, like that's, I feel like that's kind of a theme in the play in general, the way the kind of, slippage between aesthetic and political judgment. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one thing that's pretty striking here is that Schacht does seem to be a kind of savvy audience member, right? I mean, I think that he, the way that he differentiates between the director's stage direction and the acting of the actors and the text of the play itself is actually kind of more sophisticated than what we might expect of 
a lot of audience members. And he uses that sort of sophistication, as you say, as a way to smuggle in this incredibly um, problematic political claim. Yeah, I mean, he's almost a Brechtian audience member, right? Like he's he's very able to criticize the play itself and he's not taken in by the sort of illusion of it, right? He's, he's very conscious mm-hmm. of the of the stagecraft going on. Yeah, absolutely. And there's one moment that it didn't quite um, make it into this section, but he tells the reporter that it's when he sees himself on stage that he realizes for the first time who he really was. Um, but of course he doesn't seem to realize anything about his culpability. Whatever he's realizing uh, seems to be about, I don't know, how how innocent he was, how persecuted he was, maybe. Um, so if it is Brecht theater, it might be a great example of the way that Brecht's sort of techniques might go wrong, right? That somebody actually comes away, has the sort of critical distance from the play, but then comes away with a very different idea than what the playwright might have wanted to convey. Right. So um, this anecdote is situated in your book, uh, which is is kind of uh, an overview of the intersection between uh, trials and theater uh, in in a broad sense. Um, and you point out in your book that trials have been part of theater since, you know, really the very beginning of, of at least Western theater, uh, going back to the trial scene in the Oresteia. Um, But that also there's the, there's this moment after World War II and for maybe about, you know, two decades afterwards where trial plays are, are a really popular theatrical form. Um, why do you think that was? It's a great question. I think... A lot of it just had to do with the politics of the time. Um, This is a period um, that is really defined by its trials, right? So certainly all of the post-war trials, the Nuremberg trials, um, the Eichmann trial, the Frankfurt-Auschwitz trials... But even before that, international politics had been shaped by the Moscow show trials, right? The the Sacco and Vanzetti trial, and before that, the Dreyfus affair, right? And so this is a moment when trials become so central to public debates about justice and what it means for justice to be carried out. And trials become this very international phenomenon, right, where people are following trials that are happening in other countries. And then for the first time, we have an international trial. We have what Brecht um, described as the first time that a country is being held to account in a court of law for its, uh, for its crimes, right? This is how Brecht described the Nuremberg trials. And so for this reason, I think this was also a moment in which trials were really front and center in the popular consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just, I mean, there are a lot of plays that are dealing explicitly with these 
trials with the, the, the trials related to the Holocaust. But, you know, when I started to think about famous trial plays, I feel like they're almost all kind of in this period, you know, whether it's uh, Inherit the Wind or To Kill a Mockingbird, the, the, the stage adaptation mm-hmm. of, of that book. I mean, it really does seem like the idea of using theater as a place to uh, to kind of enact judgment is is uh, you know really in the air. Um, I, I want to ask a, a sort of you know maybe a, a excessively nerdy theater history question, but <laughs> do you think there's a way that we can see this as sort of the like I don't know the the furthest possible extension of something like uh, Shaw's argument in the quintessence of Ibsenism that what makes modern drama distinctive is that it, it involves you know, debate and discussion. And these are plays that are, you know, all debate and discussion. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so. But I think that, um, I think that they read as being all debate and discussion. One of the things that I found as I began to look through the archival materials about these plays is that they did range a lot in the ways that they were actually produced, right? And so, um, for example, Irvin Piscator's production of Peter Weiss's play, The Investigation, um, which was based on the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial, uh, which was a really key moment in Germany because this was the first time that Uh, functionaries at a concentration camp were charged for their crimes. Um, And so Piscator's production of this play based very closely on the proceedings of the trial um, had this incredibly overwhelming sound design that was created by Luigi Nono, himself a very important composer at the time, that by all accounts, the volume was incredibly loud within the theater. Uh, It is a very creepy sort of sound design. You hear sort of distorted sounds of people um, screaming, the voices of children, sounds that sort of sound like gas, um, And so on the one hand, reading the text of the play, The Investigation, it is absolutely all about debate and discussion. But I think that for audiences who were in that performance, there was this other component that was maybe a more visceral one. Yeah. And one of the things I found fascinating about the book is that you you kind of suggest that because, you know, these are plays, like plays are harder to censor than, than novels or, or poetry or something, because there's always that indeterminacy of, of the live performance, how it's going to be directed, how it's going to be acted. And this means that, you know, documentary theater can be a very slippery medium where a, a plays could be put to very different uses than what the author perhaps intended them to be used for, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that was completely the case with this play trial in Nuremberg, the one that shocked went and saw um, because it was actually first performed, not in Vienna, but on the other side of the iron curtain, it was first performed in East Germany there. It was actually subject to the censors and there are descriptions of the sort of, um, you know, gentle, but, 
probably absolutely mandatory suggestions given by government officials who would uh, attend the rehearsals. Um, and the really fascinating thing is that when it was performed in East Germany, this play based on the transcripts of the Nuremberg trials was really used as a way to think about West German rearmament that was happening at the time to condemn the U.S.'s war in Vietnam. And also from, uh, and also in a way to criticize the East German regime's narrative about, um, about the Second World War, which really excluded uh, the Holocaust from that story. That story was all about the anti-fascists and the fascists and the sort of uh, racial persecution that was so central to um, National Socialism was erased. So within the original production in Berlin, the playwright Rolf Schneider is doing this sort of complicated dance where on the surface, he makes this play look like it's actually a condemnation of the U.S. and West Germany. He does smuggle in, though, some sort of implicit criticisms of East Germany. Then it travels from this original production in East Berlin to a production, a new production in Vienna, in which Actually, there unfortunately isn't a video recording of it, but I did listen to an audio recording and Schacht is kind of made out to be this very sympathetic character. The audience often laughs at the sort of witticisms that Schacht delivers while on stage. It's clear that the whole framing of the play was very different from what uh, Ralph Schneider intended in the original East German production. Um, so we absolutely, one of the things that interested me in looking at these plays is the way that their politics shift through both stagings and through the way that they're performed. Um, another quick example would be uh, Piscator, Irvin Piscator's production of Arthur Miller's the Crucible, right, which within the U.S. context is about the House on American Activities hearings and McCarthyism. But when Piscator produces it in Germany, it actually becomes a play about um, primarily about racial persecution, right, and about anti-Semitism. So I'm really fascinated in the particular capacity for these trial plays to also put on trial uh, different sorts of um, issues and constellations as they move and are produced in different places. Right. I mean, you know, in a way you would think that theater would maybe not be the ideal form to create something that's kind of trying to represent some kind of objective truth, right? I mean, you know, it's, it, it, why wouldn't you just make a documentary film? Like that would seem to be, you know, much, much more, uh, uh, I don't know, authoritative or something. Mm -hmm. Why did theater, why did, why did these plays have to be plays? I think that's 
an incredibly um, important point, right? That one of the things about theater and about playwriting in particular is that you lose control over it. Um, <clears throat> this is actually even a point that Hannah Arendt makes when she's she writes in The Origins of Totalitarianism about the um, the initial run of Recht's Three Penny Opera in Berlin. And she writes that this is an example of the way that the writers, directors, producers of a play can never fully control its meaning. Um, because when she went and saw the Three Penny Opera, the room was full of the very sort of capitalists who Brecht is condemning. And for them, they thought it was a fantastic time. For them, Brecht's message that um, capitalism is itself structurally a criminal gangster-like enterprise was one that they actually thought was great. They love to be compared to um, to gangsters and criminals, right? They actually embrace that. Um, and this is Arendt's um, description of it. And so, yeah, if even the Three Penny Opera can be seen as a celebration of capitalism, what hope is there for theater to deliver any sort of message? And my answer here is actually really similar to Arendt's, where paradoxically, it is this very capacity of theater um, to change the world in ways that weren't initially foreseen that make it the most political art form. Um, Arendt's uh, political theory is in a way very frustrating because she argues that any action that people take is immediately intertwined within this net of other actions. We can never know what the ultimate result of an action will be, right? But all, all we can keep doing is to keep acting within this world of other people, right? Because for art, freedom actually isn't doing what you want and creating something and having it be out there in the world. Freedom for her is defined as the space between people, right? It, the conflicts between people, the negotiations between people. Um, and so this is a roundabout way of getting to your answer. But the, the challenge is that it's precisely because these plays can be so radically reinterpreted against the intentions of the playwright or the original director, that they are so important to political discourse, right? That's what defines political discourse itself. Right. It's not that theater is a particularly efficient sort of way to transmit a message from one brain to another, but that it's the act of watching plays is itself an act of kind of democratic deliberation, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, I want to talk a little bit in, in, I mean, we've kind of been ranging pretty broadly throughout the book, but you do organize it 
into chapters that are primarily about uh, these these three uh, figures, these kind of three key figures. And you've already talked about Hannah Arendt, uh, which is who's a theorist. I don't think people often kind of think about in the context of theater history. I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but why did you begin your book with her, and what is the importance of theater? for our rent. I know you've already started, kind of started to talk about this a little bit, but um, I'd love if you could kind of go more in, in depth about, you know, what for her is, for example, the importance of a trial itself being a, a type of theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Arendt is, I think, very profoundly influenced by contemporary theater. She knew Brecht, her first husband, um, actually worked closely with Brecht. Uh, and she writes a great deal about theater, actually, though, strikingly, her analysis of um, theatricality and politics is generally just interpreted in relation to um classical Greek theater. So Arendt writes a lot about the um, the Athenian polis and Athenian democracy. And so work on Arendt has tended to focus on, when it focuses on theater, on this sort of imagination of Greek theater. I think, though, that if we understand her work in conversation with the contemporary theater of her day, which she was absolutely following and attending, it gives us a very different sense of what she means when she talks about theater. Um, And of course, this comes out, I think, first and foremost in her um, account of the Eichmann trial, Eichmann in Jerusalem, which is probably her most um, controversial uh, work. And so a lot of critics have taken objection with Arendt for calling, more or less calling the Eichmann trial uh, a show trial for talking about the theatricality and criticizing the theatricality of the trial. And I think one thing that comes out when you really actually look at her interest in contemporary theater is that She's criticizing not so much theatricality per se, but a particular type of theatricality within the Eichmann trial. So her concern with the Eichmann trial is that it, um, if uh, we want to use Brecht terms, that the Eichmann trial presents a sort of Aristotelian uh, drama, right? That the, it's structured in such a way that it makes um, the Holocaust, it presents the Holocaust as the inevitable outcome of millennia of anti-Semitism in Europe, uh, that it seeks to create some kind of catharsis uh, in those who are watching it that will create um, a new sort of national identity uh, that will will specifically further a nationalist agenda within Israel. And what she says is actually that theater 
is really important to the trial. She has a line where she says, for justice to be done, it must seem to be done, right? But the kind of theater that she's looking for is not an Aristotelian theater. It's not a theater that's about inevitable fate and about catharsis. She's calling very much for a Brechtian theater, for an epic theater, right? In which people attending the trial would be constantly asked to critique the sort of narrative that's being presented to them, right? And being asked to think about whether the um, the Holocaust was inevitable um, and to think about how Eichmann also could have acted differently, right? Because ultimately for Arendt, the problem with the sort of the way that the trial was um, was staged was not that it condemned Eichmann. She actually thought that it let Eichmann off too easily because it made his actions seem like this inevitable part of history where she wanted to actually focus on the ways that he could have acted differently, right? That any individual um, German soldier actually could have said no um, and could have not obeyed their murderous orders. Um, so yeah, I think that reading Arendt in relation to contemporary theater absolutely can make us understand her political theory in, uh, in a richer way and particularly understand what it means when she talks about acting and action in the public sphere. Right, because it's not this idea that saying something is theatrical is the same as saying that it's fake or artificial, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then I'm 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 totally convinced that there's like a, a sort of uh, an, an influence here, uh, but this idea of kind of the radical contingency of history does seem very Brechtian to me. Um, I, I want to ask, though, are you making a, a more or less straightforward influence claim that, you know, Arendt is influenced by Brecht or is it more a kind of spirit of the times type of mm-hmm. argument? I think it's maybe more a spirit of the times argument. I also think that both Arendt and Brecht are very deeply influenced by Walter Benjamin. And I think that a lot of this idea of history is also um coming from Benjamin. And though Arendt and Brecht weren't very close to each other, both of them individually were very close to Benjamin. And so I think there's also his influence there. Benjamin seems to have been close to pretty much everybody. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he just seems like a wonderful sort of teddy bear of a guy in general. Yeah. there's. I don't remember who, what this original example was, but Tony Kushner somewhere writes about, gosh, I think it's Melville. He says like, you can't read Melville without kind of falling in love with him a little bit. And I feel Mm. that way about Benjamin Uh too. You're just like, he's a, he's just seems like a, like a good, smart, interesting, funny guy. Yeah. Uh, That's, you know, a tangent. Um, Do you, I get the sense, you know, this is like getting a little bit outside of the scope of your book, but I sometimes get the sense reading Benjamin on Brecht that Brecht didn't fully know what he was doing until Benjamin explained it to him. Like that, mm-hmm. that, that Benjamin's sort of summaries of what Brecht's epic theater meant are like so much more 
you know, lucid mm-hmm. and, and persuasive than, than Brecht's mm-hmm. own writings sometimes. Yeah, no, I mean, I actually, I find myself assigning um, Benjamin's What is Epic Theater probably more to my students than Brecht's own theories of theater. Uh, You know, Arendt would also have something to say about that, which is that it's for Arendt, it's um, the storyteller who afterwards can give the most, the best account of a person's life even better maybe than they could give it of it themselves. Yeah. I I think that's a great place to transition to talking about your chapter on Brecht. Um, Earlier, you kind of mentioned this sort of strange way that uh, plays, you know, kind of have their own life after they leave the playwright. Um, And this is, is even true of Brecht, right? That, Mm -hmm. that Brecht is a playwright who directed at least the first productions, I think of, of all of his plays, or if, if not all at least the, definitely the majority uh, and yet there's still this sense. I mean, you you relate a, a conversation he has in rehearsal for one of his plays where, you know, somebody says, well, don't, don't you mean this by this line? And he says, no, I, you know, we can't know what the playwright meant. We just uh-huh. have to interpret, you know, for ourselves what this mysterious playwright meant, this sort of bifurcation yeah. between Brecht the playwright and Brecht the director. And yet you also point out that Brecht compiled these sort of very extensive notebooks for how to stage the plays so that people could essentially replicate his staging of it. So he's kind of, you know, insisting on the separation between playwright and director, while at the same time he's saying, you know, if you're going to stage my play, you really should stage it in this incredibly specific way that I staged Mm it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great example of sort of Benjamin being maybe a better Brechtian than Brecht himself is. Uh, He, I think talk to really good game about democracy but as we know not only did he run his rehearsals in a very authoritarian way but he uh routinely wouldn't credit particularly his um women collaborators and so you know there's brecht as this sort of eminently democratic theorist of theater, but the the actual Brecht in practice was a very different historical person. When you talk about Brecht as autocratic in the rehearsal room, I, I wonder, you know, what exactly you mean by that? Because it seems on the one hand, like it's very clear that kind of what he said went, but it wasn't as clear to me reading the book that, you know, these, these were, uh, you know, tense or, kind of emotionally abusive rehearsal rooms mm-hmm. <laughs> like we've yeah. we've maybe encountered uh you know from certain directors i mean mm-hmm. do you get the sense that that being in the rehearsal room with brecht was you know a, a, an environment that brought out the creativity in his collaborators or or did it do you think it felt you know stuffy in that authoritarian way or is it or was he able to create the illusion that everyone can, can contribute while actually just getting his way in the end mm-hmm. i mean On the one hand, of course, it's fundamentally unknowable. Um, I'm sure that also different people experience his directing in different ways. I think probably gender would have a lot to do and would pretty profoundly shape how you experienced um, him as a director. But I do think that what you're describing, the sort of um, maybe 
authoritarianism, but that also maybe feels sort of good and that you might go along with is also a really good description, actually, of Brecht's relationship to the East German regime. Um, And I think that that relationship and when we think about East Germany and Brecht's really ambivalent relationship to it is um, maybe a, a good example or analogy on the political level of what rehearsals in Brecht's studio would have been, right? That mm-hmm. maybe it's not democratic. Maybe you don't agree with everything, but it's perhaps the best bulwark that you could feel against fascism um, and the resurgence of fascism, which was absolutely how Brecht felt about the East German regime. He supported it, even though he also had some big problems with it. And I can imagine that it might have felt similar to be an actor within Brecht's theater, right? That not everything is great, but that it's maybe the best political alternative. Yeah. Yeah, it's so fascinating to me how immediately the Holocaust and the Nazi regime become sort of a cudgel that both East and West Germany used to beat the other one with, right? That mm-hmm. like it's it's true that there are certainly authoritarian elements of the East German regime and it's also true that there are high-ranking Nazis in the West German regime. Mhm. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, and so it seems like you really have to read, you know, Brecht really starting in 1945 as being a sort of Cold War uh, a, a playwright, and and that's a very tricky place for for someone who you know is a kind of, kind of unorthodox Marxist in the in the way that Brecht was. Mm-hmm. Always kept a, a West German passport, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I think that this really comes to a head right in the um, East German uprising and. Gunter Grass's um, The Plebeians Rehearse the Uprising, I think, is a sort of a very cynical take on Brecht at the time, but also just a fabulous play about what that um, really ambivalent complicity with the regime might have looked like, right? And I, I don't think that we can underestimate just, I mean, just how possible it would have seemed to Brecht in the 1950s that fascism would come back um, in Germany, right? And so Mm -hmm. I think that this context, of course, now within our current context, we, we maybe are seeing that, that possibility more strongly than we have in many years, not not in Germany, but in the United States, though perhaps yeah. in Germany also to a lesser extent. I was I was talking I had a conversation with one of my friends who's an anarchist a while ago, and I sort of casually said, Well, you know, the fascists have never actually won in America. And he said, What are you talking about? The fascists have never lost. Mm-hmm. And and wow. there's there's a, yeah. a there's a real sense, at least, you know, in the in the American Communist Party that fascism might be you know, just around the corner in the United States. I mean, you, you write about 
Brecht uh, sort of theatricalizing the House on American Activities Committee hearings, but then leaving immediately afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. think that he's fooled them by, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I love the description yeah. in here of, uh, you know, some uh, House member uh, reading one of his very fiery Marxist poems and saying, mm-hmm. can you write this? And he says, well, no, that's a pretty bad translation. That mm-hmm. really distorts my yeah. meaning quite seriously. Yeah. Um, there's this sense of, of, of irony, um, but also there's a, he's, he's very aware that he's in serious danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and he, and also actually Irvin Piscator, who, um, who wasn't called, but who left the States, you know, knowing that there was an FBI file on him. He would have eventually been deported. Um, I'm sure had he not left, uh, it's, um, you know, these, uh, these are people whose lives were defined by being refugees and by being stateless. Right. And so I think, keeping as many passports as you possibly could was um, not just a marker of privilege. It was, it, it was a matter of survival for them. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could understand how if you'd been close to Benjamin, you would want to keep your options open. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've, you've just given me a lovely opportunity to transition to Piscotter, but I do want to ask, mm-hmm. you know, one more question about Brecht before we do which is, uh, you, I forget who you quote, but you say somebody wrote that every Brecht play could be called The Trial, um, mm-hmm. which I, I thought was a, was a great line. Um, what, do you, what did you mean by quoting that line, and, and what is the importance of uh, the form of The Trial for Brecht? Yeah, well, for Brecht, his, I mean, epic theater in general really seeks to turn the theater into a courtroom, right? The audience is continually being asked to not just go along with what's happening on stage, but also to judge what they're seeing in front of them. Um, Brecht is also trying to provide the audience, especially in his learning plays, with the sort of tools that they'll need to judge both what's happening on stage, but then what's happening in the world around them when they leave the theater. Um, And finally, trials are really the key narrative moment. Almost all of Brecht's plays include a pivotal trial scene, right? So if you think of The Good Person of Szechuan, where there's the the judges sit in trial over um, Shente at the very end, or you think about the measures taken, which the entirety of the play is uh, is structured as a trial. Um, trials are both this kind of key narrative aspect on stage, they're, but they're also the model for his theater. And since Brecht is so into being self-reflexive about everything, of course, having the trials take place on stage is a way of reflecting back on what judgment means and what judgment looks like, and especially what judgment doesn't look like, because most of the trials that are in Brecht's plays are supposed to be really bad and unjust trials that make the audience then think about how uh, 
how unjust trials within their own systems outside of the theater are. Right. He's like sort of putting trials on trial, maybe. Yeah. And often when he has the trials on stage, like in um, Man is Man or The Rise and Fall of the City of Mahogany, there's also an onstage audience that's treating the trial as though it's sort of a boxing match, right? The onstage audience is always drunk and rowdy and right. calling for blood and just sort of the prime example of what uh, what audiences at at trials shouldn't be. Right, but sort of what audiences at, at Brecht's plays should be, right? Doesn't he somewhere mm-hmm. say that he, he wants people to be, you know, smoking a cigar and, and shouting mm-hmm. at the stage while they're, while they're watching the plays? Yeah, yeah. I think that for Brecht, maybe cigars are good, but being drunk is bad. Okay, right? that's, that's so the, the line. So it's like the you want to have distance, you want to have critique, you can get a little bit rowdy, but you need to maintain these rational capacities. Um, And it's the, it's the sort of drunken frenzied audiences on his stage that don't have that. Yeah. All right. Uh, Let's, let's transition to talking about Piscata. I think that probably uh, most of our listeners will have a, a basic familiarity with Arendt and with Brecht, but Piscata is, you know, still uh, less well-known than probably he deserves to be. So uh, what what was Fiskater's importance to German theater and what is his importance to your uh, larger argument about the place of trials in theater? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, as I was working on this project, I sort of started to feel about Fiskater the way that you described feeling about Benjamin, which is just, you know, this is someone who is kind of always really um, just seems like a good guy, you know, and is really struggling to formulate uh, an idea of political and a practice of political theater that um, will just intervene in whatever is happening at the moment that he's working. So, I think one of the big or a few of the big differences to Brecht is first that Piscator is a stage director and a producer rather than a playwright, though he does do some playwriting in the sense that he collaborates on creating these um, documentary plays, but he's not, he's not writing dramatic theater in the way that Brecht is. So I think, um, that's a big reason why uh, today it's Brecht who we associate with epic theater rather than Piscator, just because as much as we all love and want to focus on performance, uh, our understanding of theater, particularly in this period, is still so much structured around texts rather than staging practices. Um and the other thing that's fascinating about Piscator is that, I mean, he lived a bit longer than Brecht and he really radically changes his practice of directing, both based on political circumstances, but also based on his sort of 
location, um, the culture around him. Brecht's theories of epic theater don't change all that much throughout his life, which is pretty striking because he articulates them in the Weimar Republic, um, or at the very end of the Weimar Republic, he has these theories while he's living in Hollywood. He brings these theories back to East Germany, um, all completely different political situations. Because Piscator is working as a stage director, I think that that gives him a much closer relationship to um, the sort of... uh, the two just social interactions to the cities that he's in. Um, he is working in Berlin and running a theater that he's closely aligning with the communist party. Unlike Brecht, he was a member of the party at the time. He's staging these, um, sort of tremendous, uh, rally performances, um, that are very much in line with the sort of historical avant-garde that are using all of these techniques of agitprop on a huge scale. And then he goes to New York and he's working at their dramatic workshop with Stella Adler, right? And mm-hmm. all of a sudden he's in this situation where he's also teaching students um, psychologically real psychological realism in they're acting, right? And and of course, to an extent, his politics, he can't express his politics in the same way in the States, right? And I think it's because he is teaching in New York um, and particularly because he also is teaching a relatively racially diverse group of um, students. Harry Belafonte is one of his students that he becomes more and more concerned, um, not just with class politics, but also with questions about racism and anti-Semitism. Brecht, because he's not really working day to day in a theater in Hollywood, I think his analysis of um, fascism very much stays where it had been um, in the Weimar Republic. It stays as the sort of class-based understanding of what's happening at, of capitalist, of fascism and Nazism in particular as just being the sort of ultimate commun- uh, culmination of capitalism. Piscator, I think because of his work in New York in a theater, begins to be concerned with with questions about race, with questions about anti-Semitism. Um, neither of them are, I mean, neither of them are ever in their theoretical writings very uh, concerned with gender, though I think Brecht, despite himself, writes some of the, the best feminist plays out there. Um, but... Uh, yeah, and then when Piscator moves back to West Germany, he is incredibly concerned with thinking about the Nazi past and with developing a new form of theater and fostering this documentary theater that 
would hold um, Germans to account in a way that at the time, very few institutions were. Um, so yeah, Piscator is really fascinating to me as someone who manages to really change and adapt and rethink what it means to make political theater. Um, and who also interestingly connects the moments of the historical avant-garde with the 1960s documentary theater. Right. So there's a real chain of influence there. It's not, it's not a coincidence that these kind of uh, living newspaper plays become, you know, cur- current again in the street theater of the 60s. Yeah, absolutely. One, and, one con- you know, oh, I mean, oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Um, I, I want to hear what you have to say, and then I'll ask my question. Well, I was just going to uh, say quickly, of course, he, through the dramatic workshop, he has, we can see the sort of um, uh, American theater of Marlon Brando and Tennessee Williams, who are students there, neither of whom actually graduated. Um, but of course, also Judith Molina and Ju- Julian Beck were there. So from the dramatic workshop, we can also trace these two sort of very radically different traditions of American theater on the one hand, the sort of mainstream Broadway psychological realism, but on the other hand, this quite radical protest theater of the 60s and 70s. I have a friend who's actually like a company member with the Living Theater now. Wow. And, and he's like totally obsessed with Piscotter. And I, I was always like, okay, sure, Piscotter, <laughs> whatever. But so did did Judith Melita actually study with Piscotter at the new school? Were you able to find that out or? Yes, she did. Um, he was um, not super uh, supportive of her. She she began oh, no. <laughs> as a, uh, she began as an actor student I believe and wanted to switch over to directing and you know he sort of told her no on certain terms that uh he didn't you know women weren't directors mm-hmm. um but at the same time she she did make that switch and there a few years ago there was um her notebooks from her time at the dramatic theater were published and you do see what a profound impact he had on her Another person who um, has passed since, but who I interviewed for the book is Rachel Rosenthal, who is a feminist performance artist who had worked very closely with Brecht as an assistant director on one of the productions that I studied and also, you know, saw his, had his um, work was a really formative influence on her. With, With Brecht or with Piscotter? Oh, sorry, with Piscator. Yeah, okay, Did okay. I say I Brecht? Yeah, you yeah. said, I think you she, said Brecht, but yeah. Sorry, yeah, she was working with with Piscator. Wow, that's fascinating. I, I get the sense, um, reading the chapter on Piscator, that one big difference between Piscator and Brecht is that while Brecht has this sort of very canny sense of irony, Piscator is sort of much more uh, kind of open-hearted and and sincere. Would you say that's that's accurate? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that Piscator is earnest in a sense. I also think Piscator is not a theorist, right? So Piscator, um, his book that comes close to giving a theory of his 
theater, which is called the political theater, is actually really just basically a collection of press clippings and program notes. He doesn't, um, yeah, he's not a theorist in the way that uh, that Brecht is a theorist. I think he's just very much someone who's trying to do something on stage and is willing to throw out whatever ideologies or convictions about theater he had subscribed to uh, depending on the context. And I think Brecht was very concerned to go back to one of the things that you brought up before, very concerned with creating this foundation of a type of theater that would continue after his death. Yeah. You, you read a lot about um, Piscotter's production of Peter Weiss's The Investigation, which you say was meant to be a criticism of the Auschwitz trials. Is that, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating. I, I had never no. I mean, I've read the play and I, I had not known that it was meant to be a critical of the Auschwitz trials. What was his criticism and, and how is that meant to be evident in the play? So the um, the there were a few types of criticism, and the investigation was actually written as the trial was going on. So I believe that the trial hadn't finished when Peter Weiss finished the script, but had finished when um, Piscator staged it. So that's oh. um, that's kind of fascinating, but. The, there were a few types of criticism. The first was that um, the uh, the survivors who were brought to testify were, I think, from everything that I've read, treated quite disrespectfully. There were briefs to the um, to the court from the defense saying that because the uh, survivors who were testifying were foreign, they their word couldn't be trusted, their testimony couldn't be trusted in the same way that witnesses for the defense who were, you know, Germans uh, could be trusted throughout the entire trial. The, um, the defendants sort of put on a show of just being very dismissive of the tr- the charges against them um and they the the sentences that came down were incredibly light um they really there these were men who um really more or less got away with perpetrating mass murder um and so yeah, so I think that there was a lot <laughs> there was a lot to criticize in there and I think for many critics of these trials uh it was just an example of West Germany trying to do something maybe more for PR purposes than mm-hmm. anything else. These men had been able to live openly in West Germany building successful businesses with uh, often looted money. Um, and for vice also even more so than the individual defendants, uh, vice as, um, uh, a leftist was 
primarily also concerned with the role of German industry in the um, in the Holocaust, the sort of the benefits and labor that they got from this whole system of both slavery and um, mass murder. And so Vice also wanted to make very explicit the sort of the connection between Nazism and capitalism as it continued to exist in West Germany in the 1960s. Yeah, so I he, mean, <laughs> as it just continues to exist, I guess I right, should yeah, say. Sure. But that was his context. So that's sort of the old the kind of Brecht's analysis of of the Nazis as as uh, you know fundamentally about capitalism. Yeah, well, I think um, it's interesting. I do think that Vice adds to that quite movingly. I think that he, and I think that this is where. Um, he and Piscator sort of make a good team is that both of them do have this leftist critique of capitalism, but both of them are also very concerned with um, anti-Semitism and for, well, for both of them, actually, um, imperialism, Mm -hmm. racism, much more generally uh, in a way that can't just be explained by class right. on its own. So I think that they do, they do have, um, to my mind, a richer analysis of what's happening. Um, I will say that for Peter Weiss, and one of the things that he was then uh, criticized for was that he was absolutely primarily concerned with linking um, anti-Semitism in Germany to the various uh, um, anti-colonial struggles in the world, right? And so Mm -hmm. linking the sort of uh, racist logic of imperialism to the Nazi regime, and there, there was pushback on that saying, you know, these these things are quite different, but, um, but yeah, that was, that was his analysis. Yeah. Which, yeah, that seems like a, you know, prophetic or even obvious analysis now that of course imperialism mm-hmm. is, is connected with, uh, with, with the Holocaust. Um, I wanted to ask you, are, did you, were you following all the, the recent controversy over the production of the investigation in New York? No, I, I haven't. Oh, okay. So this was really fascinating. So there was a, I, I, I think I'm getting all the facts here right, but there was a co-production uh, of, uh, with Theater of War and the Yiddish Theater Folkspina of the investigation. Mm-hmm. And Theater of War, you know, I, I, uh, does these kind of shortened versions of plays and then has a long kind of community discussion afterwards. And during the community discussion, some of the actors we're drawing parallels between the Holocaust and other forms of oppression and, and uh, intolerance. And several board members of the Yiddish theater folks, you know, walked out in protest hmm. because they felt like this was minimizing the kind of uniqueness of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this seems to be a really interesting case study in something you talk about in the book, which is, you know, the ways that uh, doing these plays further and further away from the immediate context of 
the Holocaust can be really politically uh, messy. Um, uh-huh. I, w- I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that, about, you know, is is there something, should we be worried about, or should we, should, should we be careful about kind of redoing the investigation? Is it still a play that's worth doing, or is it so tied to its time uh, of Germany's kind of self-evaluation after the war that, that it's really more of a museum piece than a sort of piece of the repertory at this point? That's so fascinating. And I can't believe, I mean, it just, I guess uh, we're all in our own bubbles. I can't believe that I hadn't um, I, I think it was like a pretty limited, I, I think it was maybe, you know, presented once or, or twice. I, it wasn't, yeah. uh, you know, but it, it, I reading the book, I was so, you know, it struck me that this was kind of a, a, a perfect contemporary case study of, of this issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's fascinating because actually I, it does sort of also sound like history repeating itself. That conversation isn't um, new. That conversation sounds very much like the condemnations of the investigation that um, that happened when it first came out. So on the one hand, within Germany, the investigation was sort of predictably um, uh, condemned by the far right, um, by right. far right publications. Yeah, not, Nazis didn't like it. Yeah. Um, makes sense. But, you know, also like the... Uh, uh, maybe maybe like slightly less right than the Nazis. Um, but and I think that there was, uh, there was also a lot of criticism of it that came from people who would have thought of themselves as politically centrist, who were saying, "Oh well." Obviously, we know that the Nazis are bad, but that was 20 years ago. And like, certainly we have other things to talk about and let's not beat a dead horse. And, you know, in one of the op-eds about it, someone wrote, you know, oh, just think about how horrible it would be for a couple of young people to go out on a date and accidentally go and see this play thinking it was a murder mystery. And then, you know, like their whole date would be ruined. Right. So there's like a lot of this sort of mm-hmm. weird stuff that I think is very familiar in our own way um, today of like the way that people might talk about uh, plays or movies that are very explicit in their portrayal and condemnation of, of, um, racism where it's like oh well we all know that already why why do we need to sit here and watch this um so there's that but now to get to this controversy there was also a lot of condemnation um of the play amongst scholars in the u.s particularly sort of holocaust studies scholars um eli weisel himself wrote about it and the uh, the criticism there, I think, was um, was that the identity of the victims as Jews was um, effaced in order to turn the play into a more convincing analogy to think about um, other cases of oppression. 
So within the play, Piscotter actually doesn't use the word Jew. Um, he also doesn't, uh, and this is different, but he also doesn't use the word German. He doesn't really use proper nouns. He does um, refer to um, the, he does refer to, with um, names to some of the characters. So it becomes clear that they're Jewish. Um, to me, what's interesting here, I mean, and this, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but I think that part of that criticism of the play, at least as, um, as it happened after the, um, the publication of the play was imagining this play as a text rather than as something that would take place in the theater. So in Piscator's production, for example, Piscator actually um, worked hard to find Jewish actors to portray the characters and to find actors who were also famous enough that people would have recognized them as Jewish as people who had had to either be in hiding or who had been refugees during the war. Um, and so even though the word Jew isn't spoken, Piscator was bringing these uh, Jewish people onto the stage, right? Um, and, you know, in, in 1960s, West Germany, that was also a pretty striking move. There wasn't the kind of discourse that we have today about uh, actors and representation and self-representation, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't, obviously right, not yeah. having seen this, sure, the sure. production that you're talking about, I can't, I can't say offhand, but just to, just to say that, these debates are ones that keep coming up. And I think that there is this really sort of vexed conversation about um, trying to come up with different hierarchies of suffering, right? And trying to, um, trying to uh, figure out how on the one hand to, and I believe it's incredibly important to maintain historical specificity if we're going to understand the particulars of um, one per of a genocide or to understand the particulars of how um, Nazism came to, uh, came to rule Germany, right? I think we do need to... Mm -hmm. Be careful of the specifics. We can't just say, oh, and this is just like the Nazis um, to, to talk about anything that we don't like. But on the other hand, um, it's also incredibly important, right, to think about uh, how we can learn from that history in order to consider uh, new cases of injustice um yeah 
it's really it's, striking. It's a tough line. Yeah, I mean, it's it, you really you go to great length to point that out that he really does insist on the specificity of the Jewish experience of the Holocaust, even while in other plays he you know goes to great lengths. Piscator does goes to great lengths to draw those kind of connections, but he doesn't really do mm-hmm. that with the with his staging of the investigation. Um. Sorry, that he so, like, does in, draw the connections? Or? No, he, so, I mean, you, you discuss his production of The Crucible, which I think had, like, a backdrop that included scenes from other persecution throughout history, yeah. right? But he doesn't do anything like that for the investigation. hmm Yeah. Well, he doesn't on stage, but the they do have a program book, and the the program book does actually make all of those connections. Mm-hmm. Um, quite explicit, uh, especially especially connecting the war crimes of Nazi Germany with uh, America's war crimes in the war in Vietnam. Great. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show. Um, I, I think I just want to say one thing about your book, which is that I think so often books that are about plays either just treat them like they're a text, uh, like any other type of text, or are just concerned with kind of theater as performance and and don't really do the close textual readings that you do. So I think your book is a really great example of how you can kind of really appreciate the dual nature of theater, that that there is a text that you can study and analyze as a literary work, but that you also have to take into account how it was staged and performed in the historical context. Thank you so much. Yeah. And um, be sure to let me know next time you have a book. I'd love to have you back on the show. Oh, I'd, I'd really love that. I, I really appreciate um, you taking the time to speak to me. And if anyone out there has made it all the way to the end of this podcast, uh, thank you so much for <laughs> for spending this time with us. Before we go, can we um, have a little preview? I don't know if you've had time to even start thinking about next projects, but could you tell us a little bit about what you might be working on next? Yeah, well, I'm... I'm actually uh, thinking a lot about podcasts these days, and in in some ways, the sort of the fundamental question of this book staged is about what sort of public space theater is and can be. And in my next project, I'm interested in um, thinking about radio and podcasts, actually, in the same terms. What um, what are the ways that radio creates particular types of um, public spaces? Uh, that, that sounds fascinating. Well, well, we'll have to have you back on the show when that, when that project comes out. Um, once again, the, so the book is Stage, Show Trials, Political Theater, and the Aesthetics of Judgment. Be sure to check it out. <laughs>